scripture, which today is from, taken from John chapter 7, verses 25 through 44. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? He is here speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is born. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees held the crowd whispering such, heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest days of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who who believed in him were later to receive. Upon that time, the spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So uh, we did launch into reading the Bible through the year uh, last week. Uh, the readings are in your bulletin. There's bookmarks outside. Uh, you can do one of two things if you didn't get that announcement or didn't get to start at the beginning of the year. Uh, you can do a cram session like I think Josh is for some of his finals in about a week and a half uh, and uh, read through a week's worth of readings uh, and kind of catch up and be in line then. Or you can just start with where we are and you'd be in Matthew 8 uh, today. Uh, what I've loved through this reading plan is there's a couple of portions of the Old Testament, a couple of the New. So instead of just trying to read through Genesis all together, uh, there's part of Genesis, and we've gotten to hear about God creating the world and uh, Spirit of God hovering on the waters. We've learned about the fall of human beings. Uh, this, uh, just yesterday was Noah and the ark. Uh, but we're also reading part of Ezra, and we hear about God allowing the people and sending the people back to Jerusalem and the renewal movement there that took place in rebuilding the temple of God. We've read in Matthew about Jesus' birth, 
the announcement of the presence of his kingdom and the Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon ever in history in Matthew 5 through 7. We've also read about the birth of the church in Acts and the Holy Spirit being poured out on the first followers of Jesus and them being able to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. It is amazing all that God does in Scripture and the ability to enter into it and receive it. And you know, when we hear Scripture, then we have this response of like, okay, what are we going to do with it? I remember a time when I was in a conversation with a college student. I was leading a Bible study through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I encouraged this guy to read through the Bible for himself to see uh, whether it held up. And the guy was initially excited. He's like, wow, Jesus has some good things to say. He, he did some miracles, and maybe he'd do some things in my life. But then increasingly, as he got into reading the Gospel of John, he became more and more uncomfortable. He realized that Jesus said some hard things that confronted some aspects of his life that he did not want God to get into. And eventually that person decided to reject the teachings of Jesus and reject the opportunity to follow Jesus and and stand apart from him. And he told me, "I, I no longer want to investigate Jesus. I no longer want to do that. Well, in the passage today, we're going to see people that reject Jesus, we're going to see people that are confused by Jesus, and we're going to see people that see Jesus for who he is in the midst of his teaching. And there's really all those different responses. We're going to pick up on some of the parts, the earlier part of John 7, but we're going to pick up in our reading right now in John 7, verses 25 to 44. There it says, at that point... Some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but who, he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You look for me here, but you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me? But you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And living waters, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, living waters will stream and flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? 
Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. The Gospel of John seems to follow the process of that person that I mentioned that I encountered in college. There's sort of an investigation of Jesus. There's hearing his teaching, but there's wrestling with who he is and what that means. Eventually, we're going to see that there is direct and hostile reaction, and we see some of that in the religious leaders sending the guard to arrest Jesus. But there's this mounting tension that comes with how Jesus is revealing God to them and how people are responding. And what we're going to see in this passage is this. Following Jesus involves understanding who he is, why he came, and how he can meet our spiritual thirst. Let me say that again. Following Jesus involves understanding who he is, why he came, and how he can meet our spiritual thirst. Here's the background. About six months have passed since Jesus fed the 5,000 people in John 6. We've had about a month that has passed since the events of John 6 because we took a break and looked at the adventure of Advent and Jesus is coming through the other Gospels. But now Jesus kind of picks up where he has left off. He did a miraculous saying in feeding the 5,000 people. He's healed people, but on the Sabbath, and that's caused religious leaders to become more and more uncomfortable with him. In the midst of this, the Father has appointed a moment where Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and die. And so Jesus is weighing every action to fit that timing, but it is not yet. The context here is of the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the feasts that all uh, Jewish men should go up to Jerusalem and celebrate. And this feast was often known as the feast, even in comparison with Passover. The Feast of Tabernacles was seen as a, a central feast in the life of the people. It was held in the fall, and it celebrated and, uh, God for a good harvest. It was like the harvest festival. We've sometimes had harvest festivals here. And so people would come to Jerusalem and celebrate God and praise him for a good harvest. It also remembered what God did to walk with the people of Israel in the desert journey. So it remembered when Moses struck the rock and water came out of the rock and and met the thirst of the weary travelers through the desert. They remembered when God sent rain. They remembered that God had provided water and that he had provided food for his people. And it was a celebration of thanks. As a feast of tabernacles, or sometimes called booths, the people there would live in huts or booths or tabernacles or tents for a week. So if you like our summer camp out where we go and camp out for the weekend, uh, know that they did it for a whole week. And they had these thatched roofs made with branches, and they, they lived outside for that whole week. And on the culminating day of the festival they would celebrate that God was a God who provided living water and that ultimately water would flow from Jerusalem to the world. So the tabernacles was not only linked with the living water, physical water of rain and the celebration of good harvest, but also with the ingathering of the nations at the end of the age. That God wasn't just for the Israelite people, but was about reaching the nations through his people. In the midst of this background, Jesus responds to different people that react to him in various ways. And there's obviously some people here who were opposed to following Jesus. 
The first group we're introduced into in the earlier part of the passage is, are his brothers. His brothers did not understand Jesus' mission and did not believe in him. And they kind of come to him and say, hey, it's time to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. You've been doing these miracles out kind of in the backwater of Galilee. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and do the same thing? And then you'll gain a lot of notoriety. I almost think about that part of the passage being like Joseph and his brothers in the Old Testament, the end of Genesis. Brothers that were likely jealous. Brothers that didn't understand their their brother's purpose. And I can get that, you know, when you grow up with brothers, you do dumb things sometimes and you kind of see the underside of things. Uh, I remember one of the stupidest things my older brother and I ever did. I think for about a week, he dated a girl named Kim when he was in high school. And down the block from our street, there was a street named Kim Street. So one night, Rob comes to me at like 10 o'clock and says, hey, I need your help with something tonight. What's that? Hey, about like 12, 30, 1 o'clock, I'm going to wake you up, and we're going to go down the street, we're going to remove the Kim Street sign, and then I'm going to give it to my girlfriend. So we did this and removed this street sign. Mom and dad don't know about this one. This is one of these 50-year-old revelations. And of course, his relationship with this girl named Kim lasted about a week before they broke up. That was one of the dumber things we did as brothers. Well, you know, brothers tend to goad each other into things. They come up with sometimes dumb ideas. And the brothers of Jesus had the ultimate dumb idea, like, hey, just go and show yourself. Prove that you, you, know, that you deserve the notoriety of the people. They completely missed out in the mission and purpose of Jesus and his timing. Jesus wasn't there to just gain the notoriety of crowds. He was there to die for the sins of the people and the world. And he would only do it on his time. There's another reaction in addition to the brothers that encouraged Jesus to go up to the, to the festival. And, uh, you know, that temptation, I think, from the brothers is much like the temptation of Satan. When Jesus was in the desert and Satan tempted him during that desert 40 days, and he says, you know, Satan says to Jesus, hey, jump down from the temple and just have the angels of God, you know, save you and catch you. And that'll tell everybody you're the Messiah. Similarly, the brothers like, just go and show who you are with power. But Jesus wasn't about misusing power, and he wasn't about short-term results. He was about the long-term reality of our need for forgiveness of sins. Similar to the reaction of his brothers, there's a response of the world. And we're told that the world hated Jesus here because Jesus testifies that what the world does is evil. The world here is representative of the general response to Jesus. It's people who are opposed to God or the human system that is opposed to God's purpose. It's that part of the world that just says, hey, we are fine the way we are. It's better if there isn't a God that's over all and through all. We want to just do things our own way on our own time. And that is the response of the world. And increasingly, the world's response to Jesus was one of hatred because he called them on their sin. We don't like being called on our sin. We don't like people to be in our business. And the more Jesus is teaching, got into the the kitchen, so to speak, of people in the world, the more they pushed him away. There was already one part of the Gospel of John where we said that, where it's told that people left Jesus because his teaching was just too hard. The world largely wants to stay the way it is, 
retain its deep-seated attitudes that turn them away from a loving creator and the need for forgiveness of our sin. And so we find the world increasingly rejecting Jesus or pushing him away. And I just want to remind you that as followers of Jesus, we can anticipate much of the same. Jesus increasingly in the Gospel of John tells his disciples that they will experience rejection and hostility too. I think often we're surprised by that when it comes, or we sort of elevate it. We, we know that there are people that follow Jesus in other parts of the world that are facing persecution, even martyrdom. But for us as Christians or Christ followers in America, whenever we face resistance, I think we still feel surprised by that. But we shouldn't be. Because the world rejected Jesus also. And we will experience rejection. So there's the response of the brothers. Hey, go show yourself. But they didn't understand his mission. There was the response of the world that pushed Jesus away. And then there's a response by the crowds that were simply, I would say, confused by Jesus. And in the passage, we see several responses to him. We hear somebody say, well, he's, he's a good man. And Jesus is a good man. He's the only good man. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. If there ever was a good man, it was Jesus. But Jesus isn't just a good guy. Some saw him as a prophet or a prophet. He's got powerful things to say. And in the Old Testament, prophets did miracles. And so some are starting to say, oh, he's, he's the prophet. He was the one, he's the one that was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's not the guy, but he's the guy before the guy is essentially what these people think. They see that he's doing miracles, that he's someone unique and special. And so they're able to be at a point to say, oh, he's the prophet. He's the one that is preparing the way for God. But there's others that respond to Jesus by saying that he's a madman. He's uh, he's got an illusion to being somebody he is not. And here, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about, you know, Jesus is either a liar, he knew he wasn't the son of God, but he claimed to be, or he's a lunatic, a madman, who thought he was God, but he was confused by that and, and just didn't know. Or the third option, Lewis says, is he is the Messiah. He's the one and only son of God who came to save the world from their sin. So there's increasing division among the crowds in trying to grasp and understand who Jesus is and what his revelation means. So how do we come to a true understanding of Jesus? Following Jesus involves understanding what his mission is. In other words, if we are going to grow as his followers and understand what it means to follow him, we need to pay attention to a few things. And the first thing is his timing. The second is his way. And the third way is his teaching. First of all, Jesus has his own timing. The brothers of Jesus say, hey, go up to the, the festival and, and show yourself. Prove yourself true. Go do a miracle there. But Jesus says, I'm not going up to the feast until the Father tells me to do so. Jesus would not do anything in opposition to God's plan and God's timing. He was on a completely different timetable than his brothers and the rest of the world. Just think, what if Jesus had done what the brothers requested? What if he had gone up to the festival and he had done some miracles there? They would have just wanted to kill him even sooner. Jesus wanted time to teach 
to point to the truth of who he was. He didn't want to rush that timetable. He knew that he would ultimately go up to Jerusalem and be killed and sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. But Jesus is clear, my time had not yet come. When Jesus usually speaks about his hour, he uses the word aura in the Greek, having not yet come. He's speaking about you know, his death and when that will occur. Here, he basically speaks about his time as in it's not the opportune time. The Greek word is kairos. It's, it's not the, the right time. Jesus is saying that he has a purpose that he has to fulfill, but it's not yet time for that. His ultimate goal is to die for the sins of the people and the world, but it's to do it at the right time when people would be most ready to receive that revelation. Jesus has his own timing. He also has his own way. He's not there to just do miracles and make a big splash. Jesus is there to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world, to save you and me and the people there and then. He has his own way of living out the call to be the Messiah. And he also has his own teaching. Jesus is going to teach what God has called him to teach. He's not going to teach in a way just the, the, the things that people want to hear. If you're reading in our Bible plan so far this week, you've heard confusing things from Jesus. He doesn't just teach what we want to hear or just give us nice words. I don't know about you, but my Facebook feed is increasingly filled with ads. I don't really hear about your lives anymore. I know there's things that I could do about it, but I haven't taken the steps to do that yet. But increasingly, what I'm just getting is nice little memes, nice comforting words, along with other ads for things that they think I need. And, and some of those phrases are kind of cool, like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That, that. That's encouraging. But some of those phrases are kind of trite, and it's like, what does that really mean? Well, Jesus wasn't there to just give a nice little Facebook you know, saying, something that we can just feel kind of warm and fuzzy about. Jesus was there to challenge us at the very core of our lives. And often his teaching is increasingly uncomfortable. There are things that he teaches about human sexuality. There are things that he teaches about our finances. Man, does he teach us things about our finances that we don't necessarily want to hear, but we need to hear if we're following Jesus, and if we're going to let other things that could consume us not have primary place, and Jesus too have that primary place. Following Jesus involves understanding his mission, his timing, his way, and his teaching. Following Jesus also involves understanding how Jesus revealed God. Jesus says, I was sent by God, that my teaching comes from God, and that I've come to honor God. Jesus didn't just come on his own. He was the emissary or the ambassador of God from heaven. He made the ultimate road trip from heaven to earth to reflect God and to help us see who God is truly for who he is. To see him in flesh and in a way that we could understand and receive. And Jesus is saying, I don't just tell you things that are my best thoughts. I'm telling you the words of God. When I get up and preach, or Greg, or Tim, or whoever gets up and preaches, if we're just giving our best thoughts to you, we and the church is in a world of hurt. If we're actually teaching the word of God to you, sharing what God has taught us in a week of study, then we're going to have the kind of foundation we need. And we just read about that last night. If you're following along in Matthew 7, Jesus said, if you put my words into practice, you're like, The wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rains came, the winds blew, and the floods rose. But the house stood solid. We need to hear Jesus' teaching, and we need to know that, that Jesus' teaching comes from God. It has God's authority. It wasn't just Jesus saying, thus says the Lord, like the prophets of the Old Testament. He actually says, I tell you the truth. Jesus has his own authority to teach because he is from God, and his teaching comes directly from God. He's not just a prophet with good things to say that God gave him. He is the one who was to come to declare that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus also came to honor God. And this is one of the most amazing things that helps us see who God is through Jesus. That he came to glorify God, to shine light on God, and to honor God. He didn't come to honor himself. He came to sacrifice himself. And to teach what God sent him to teach. Jesus honors God and points to him, not to himself. But just like the Holy Spirit will point us back to Jesus and and shine light on Jesus, Jesus is there to shine light on God and to help us see what God is like in the flesh so we can understand him and receive him for ourselves. Jesus had a mission, and following him comes with understanding his mission and understanding the way he revealed God. Thirdly, following Jesus involves understanding how Jesus answers three key questions. And, you know, we have lots of questions for God. We have lots of questions in life. But there's actually three deep, meaningful spiritual questions that Jesus addresses here. And the first one is, how do we know if Jesus' teaching comes from God? How can we know? How, do we, how can we verify that his words are from God? And Jesus tells us that it is by choosing to do God's will. In other words, you will not be able to receive the reality that Jesus' teaching comes from God if you just accept that from me telling you or from anyone else. You need to embark on your own journey by putting it into practice. By putting these words into practice and living them out, we see the results, the positive results in our lives. This is really the only way to know if Jesus' words are true. I mean, they are true apart from our experience, but they become validated through our living them out. The principle here is that we find out if Jesus' teachings are true by living them out. In other words, it's like that house built on the rock. And I know some of what your lives, some of what you've experienced in your life, and I know that for many of you, you would not be where you are today if you hadn't thought to put the practices, the teachings of Jesus into practice in your life. I would not still be standing if I hadn't chosen to do that. And and God, through God strengthening and enabling, living out the words of Jesus and seeing them prove true in my experience again and again and again. That was true in times of grief and loss and sadness knowing that God was, was with me in that and I was not alone. It's also been true in times when God has been good and his goodness has been manifest in certain ways. And I might have been prone to say, wow, Mike, look at what you did. And God's word reminded me, it wasn't anything about what you did. <laughs> you are a sinner at the core of who you are. And anything that happened was good was a sheer act and manifestation of God's grace. Friends, it's, one, it's not going to help you if you just allow the word of God to go in one ear and out another. It's not going to help you if you read God's word through our reading plan, but you don't put it into practice. 
The only way you're going to see and know that Jesus' teaching comes from God is if you put it into practice in your life and you see if it holds up. And my encouragement to you is if you've never made a conscious decision to follow Jesus, if you've never sought to put Jesus' teaching into practice in your life, give it a shot and see. Say, hey, for the next 30 months, I'm gonna, 30 days, I'm going to try to live this out. And we're going to see. And I'm not telling you then that your life is going to be easy as a result, but I am going to tell you that whether things are going well or things are difficult, no matter what's going on in your life, God's word and applying it to your life will help you and will encourage you through whatever you're going through. In fact, it's the only thing that can help us make sense of whatever we're going through. G.K. Chesterton famously said this, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. In other words, the difficult parts of Scripture, we don't want to try it. We don't want to live it out. We don't want to risk the effort of allowing those teachings to change us. We may have allowed many areas of our life to be spoken to and guided and directed by God, but there's always, for each one of us, in our sin and opposition to God, there are always areas of our life where we have not tried to live out God's word. And yet when we do, we find the benefits and we find the blessings. If you or anyone else wants to know if Jesus' teaching comes from God, try it out and do it and see for yourself. That's what Jesus tells us. The one who understands that my teaching comes from God will do the will of God, will seek to apply it. A second key question Jesus answers is this. How can we know that Jesus comes from God? How do we know? Well, first of all, Jesus sought to honor the one who sent him. So he's always pointing us back to God, not to himself. Other people kind of pointed to maybe themselves and their own goodness. But Jesus was always pushing, always putting the light on God and shining the light on him, not himself. He manifests who God is. He is God in the flesh. He is the one and only son of God. He's going to say, I am. But he's saying, I am in reflection and relationship with the Father. That they are one in sharing the same nature or personhood of God. Or different than personhood, but same nature. Jesus was there to honor God and to shine light on God, to show us who God is. The people there said, well, we, you know, we don't know where the Messiah is supposed to come from. We know this guy came from Nazareth, but they hadn't heard or read of the first parts of the gospel that tell us he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the right place at the right time, as Micah had prophesied. But even more, what Jesus is saying is it's not so much important from where he came as much as who he came from. And he came from the Father. And he reflects that. He he, he reflects God's likeness in such a way that it stands up. And his way of glorifying and honoring God helps us to see God through him. Jesus shows that he was sent by God by the way he lived his life, by the way he taught, and everything he did and said. A third spiritual question we might wrestle with is, how can we know if Jesus meets our spiritual thirst? And friends, this is the most fundamental question. Because we are all seeking to have our spiritual thirst quenched in one way, shape, or form. Sometimes it could be through our sense of financial security, through our homes, through our jobs, through different ways, through uh, other types of success. We try to meet our spiritual thirst in many different ways. But we're told that Jesus, on the last day of the feast, stood up and said, 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus is saying that I am the one that can quench your spiritual thirst. And here's the important background of the Feast of Tabernacles. On every day of the feast, for the first seven days, the priests would have gone to a slightly different part of Jerusalem and gotten water out of the pool of Siloam, where where one person was healed by Jesus. They would get that water in a bowl. They would sort of ceremonially walk back to to the temple and pour out the water on the altar. And that was meant to be a remembrance of how God had provided water from the rock in the Old Testament in the Israelite desert wandering. But on the last day of the feast, this day, they didn't do that. And they basically prayed for rain. And they prayed that God would resurrect or raise the dead. And at that pinnacle point of this festival, that was meant to celebrate God's provision for cleansing, God's provision for providing water for his people, Jesus stands up and says, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. And if you do, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow out of him. Jesus is echoing Isaiah 55.1, where the prophet said, come, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink, and you'll, you'll find your spiritual thirst quenched. Jesus is saying, it's not about meeting your physical spiritual, I mean, physical thirst. It's about what I can do to satisfy the thirst of your soul. It's a spiritual question that Augustine addressed when he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And Jesus is saying, I can meet that thirst. I'm here. And that this feast that you've been celebrating, this feast of tabernacles where you honor what God did in the past, he's doing something in the here and now through me. And if you are willing to receive me and welcome me, Jesus fulfills all that the festival stood for. He satisfies our spiritual longing. He provides support and care and nurture, comfort in life. All that the the ceremony pointed to and this ritual that the priests practice of celebrating God's cleansing, Jesus is saying, I am the one that can satisfy your spiritual thirst and I am the one that can ultimately cleanse you from your sin. Jesus is claiming to be the source of the blessings anticipated at the feast. And as he's glorified, as he, when he dies and is risen again, lifted up on the cross and ultimately raised into heaven, we are told that he pours the Holy Spirit out on, his belie- on believers. And we saw that in Acts 2 for those who read this last week. As a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, he now has the power to pour out spiritual water, the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit that meets us at our point of need and satisfies our spiritual longings. That same invitation that Jesus gave that day, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow within him, is still alive today, friends. Jesus still makes that same invitation. Come to me and drink. Meet your spiritual thirst through me. What does that mean or look like? It means spending time with God. It means being in worship like you are today and meeting the living presence of God means spending time in prayer, means saturating your life with God's word so you know what he wants of you, but also how he speaks words of comfort and celebration. 
It means allowing that living presence of God to be in you and move among you, but also to move out of you, to reflect the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. My question for you in closing is this. To what extent has Christ been a continual source of spiritual refreshment for you? How has he met you on life's journey? How did he lift you up in a time of grief? How did he meet you in a time of confusion or doubt? How did he meet and quench your spiritual thirst at that great retreat you had that one time, that women's retreat that just made all the difference in your life? That camp experience when you were the age of 10 and you said yes to Jesus. That mission trip that you went on and ever after your life has never been the same because you felt God's presence working through you as you served. The goodness is that just as God met your needs and gave you spiritual refreshment in the past, he can do so again in the present because Jesus changes hearts and lives if we allow him to. As the passage continues, we're told, and we saw in the passage, but it plays out, the the religious leaders send the guards to go arrest Jesus. What happens? They go and they start listening to Jesus' teachings, and they find no reason to arrest him, and they actually say, this guy's got really good things to say. And when the religious leaders then gather back together and they ask the guards, why didn't you arrest him? Well, we didn't see any reason to, and we really enjoyed his teaching. One of them, Nicodemus, says, You know, our law tells us that we won't arrest or judge someone without hearing from them first. We won't condemn them, I should say, without allowing him to speak on his behalf. And what my encouragement to you is, is like Nicodemus, don't judge Jesus without hearing him first. Allow his words to to be present and allow to hear his words and respond to them and then judge for yourself. Because if you do, you're going to find that he is who he claimed to be. You're going to find that his teaching really is worth living out. And you're going to find that when you do that, your life will be transformed, and you're going to be a blessing to all around you. Today, we're going to kind of have a responsive opportunity uh, in line with this message. This was great. Yesterday, I was setting up this opportunity, and some people said, so I'm wondering where the ping pong balls are. Uh, this reminds me of a drinking game that I once entered into in college. Uh, what are we going to be doing tomorrow, Pastor Mike? Uh, no. Uh, what we are invited to do here in a moment, and I'm going to invite Bo to come up, uh, and I think Jessica, I think the whole worship team is part of this. We're going to be singing the song, Come to the Altar. But you're going to have an opportunity to come up and just take one of the cups of water and drink and return to your seat. But the invitation here is for you to say yes to Jesus. And yes, you want Jesus to fill you and meet your spiritual, to quench your spiritual thirst. That you're acknowledging publicly that he's the one that you believe can satisfy you. And that you're tired of trying to find satisfaction in other sources. And that you're returning to the well, to the relationship with Jesus that can meet you and can satisfy